Will the congregation please open in their Bibles to the book of Mark, chapter 5, going through verses 1 through 20 today. Mark, chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. title of our sermon is The Demoniac Healed. The Demoniac Healed. Please join with me in prayer. Lord God Almighty, we come before Thee once again, O Lord, thankful, grateful to be Thy people to be thy children. Lord, to have this opportunity to worship in this place together. Lord, to hear thy word read, to sing psalms unto thee, to sing spiritual songs unto thee. Now to hear thy word preached. Lord, keep us from error. Help us only to see that which is true. Help us only to speak that which is true. That which exalts thee, lifts thee up, makes thee more famous in our hearts, causes more glory to be ascribed to thee, helps us to walk in accordance with thy law, thy precepts, out of love, out of gratitude, out of thankfulness for what thou hast done. Lord Jesus, that thou wouldst become all the more precious to our sight, to our heart, O Lord, Holy Spirit, that thou wouldst help us to hear the word and to apply it to our hearts. Father, that thou wouldst be glorified. We would walk as thy children, being conformed to the image of thy Son, Jesus Christ, our elder brother. Lord, help thou me, this stammering and unprofitable servant, to do this great task of preaching thy word. Lord, teach me, teach all of us through the word preached to spend time in the word which thou hast given us, O Lord, is something we should be so much more grateful for. Help us to be grateful, O Lord. Help us to not treat this as a fool's errand when so many of our brethren throughout the world would love to have heard Scripture today. Let us make good use of it, Lord. Apply it to our hearts. Undo the work of Satan in this world through the proclamation of the gospel. Help us to honor thee as thou honorest this word which thou hast given us. Jesus, we love thee. We need thee. We can do nothing without thee. Holy Spirit, aid us. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 1. We'll be reading through verse 20. This is after they go across the Sea of Galilee, wherein we saw the storm last week. 
hear the word of the Lord. And they came over unto the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gadarenes. And when he was come out of the ship, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no man could bind him, no, not with chains, because that he had been often bound with fetters and chains, and the chains had been plucked asunder by him, and the fetters broken in pieces. Neither could any man tame him, and always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus afar off, he ran and worshipped him, and cried with a loud voice, and said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of the Most High God? I adjure thee by God, that thou torment me not. For he said unto him, Come out of the man, thou unclean spirit. And he asked him, What is thy name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he besought him much, that he would not send them away out of the country. Now there was there nigh unto the mountains a great herd of swine feeding. And all the devils besought him, saying, Send us into the swine, that we may enter into them. And forthwith Jesus gave them leave. And the unclean spirits went out and entered into the swine. And the herd ran violently down a steep place into the sea. They were about two thousand, and were choked in the sea. And they that fed the swine fled, and told it in the city, and in the country. And they went out to see what it was that had done, was done. And they come to Jesus, and see him that was possessed with the devil, and had the legion sitting, and clothed, and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And they that saw it told them how it befell to him that was possessed with the devil, and also concerning the swine. And they began to pray him to depart out of their coasts. And when he was come into the ship, he that had been possessed with the devil prayed him that he might be with him. Howbeit, Jesus suffered him not, but saith unto him, Go home to thy friends, and tell them how great things the Lord hath done for thee, and hath had compassion on thee. And he departed, and began to publish in Decapolis how great things Jesus had done for him. And all men did marvel. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it. Dear congregation, today we come to one of the most unnerving passages in the scriptures, in my opinion. The case of the Gadarene demoniac, the man possessed of this legion of devils. The case here is unique, this case of demonic possession, not because it's demonic possession. We've seen demonic possession many times, even in the Gospel of Mark so far. Jesus has cast out many demons so far. But it is unique because of the severity of the case and the amount of detail which Mark here gives it. In Matthew's account, there are two men that come to Jesus. And in Mark's, there is but one. This need not give us any perplexity or cause us to doubt at all. There's no synoptic problem here in my mind. For it is likely that though there were indeed two men possessed of devils that came unto Jesus, Mark simply relates the more severe of the two. The more severe of the two. Having crossed the Sea of Galilee, upon which we saw this mighty storm come forth out of nowhere in the middle of the night, almost overtake them, almost kill them, and Jesus, with a word, calms the storm miraculously. Now that they've crossed the Sea of Galilee, Jesus and his disciples arrive at the other side, outside of the town of Gadara, which was a wealthy Gentile town, not a Jewish town. This town was located up upon the cliffs by the Sea of Galilee. And leading up into the town, 
There were many caves and crags on the side of the mountain and the cliff. And also, that's where they put their graveyards, their tombs. Amidst these caves and graveyards, there dwelt at least two men, according, according to all of the synoptic gospels. There was at least two men who'd been driven from society and now lived in these tombs, the bottom of the cliff. They now had their dwelling amongst the tombs and in the caves. These men were so out of their minds, so given over, so depraved, so tormented, so ill and untamable that Matthew tells us that no one dared even pass that way. That's how terrifying these two men were. And at least one of them was given up completely to the use of civilized clothing. He was naked, Luke accounts. The worst of the two was, as our text says, always, night and day, in the mountains and in the tombs, crying and cutting himself with stones. He had become a haunt. He'd become a taunt, a mockery of what it is to be human. Something to be feared. Something that was repulsive. Something to be repulsed by. And if kindness moved one, maybe pitied. He was no longer able to be a member of society. So wicked, so depraved, was he? It's a terrible case. It's unnerving. It's detestable. It's hard to read. But let us notice in it the great hatred which Satan has toward man and the great, destru- the great destructive evil of fallen nature that it leads to things like this. Sin gives birth to death, to destruction, as the book of James tells us, to the undoing of that which is good. Satan is the first sinner. When he speaks, he lies. And when he lies, he speaks his own native tongue. Rightly is he named Apollyon, or destroyer in Scripture. His goal is to destroy. The result of all sin, the result of all sin, and the goal of Satan's working amongst men is the very undoing of humanity. To bring all things to meaninglessness to bring things to utter, hopeless absurdity. When you see people that are so far from God, so given over to worldly-mindedness, or if you've talked to people who call themselves Satan worshipers, Satanists, occultists, they are confused to the point of thinking that life is just absurd. It's meaningless. There's no point. And so they indulge in all sorts of strange practices and sinful practices to fill their time. Here we have an example of a fallen man given over not only to his own sins, but also to the working of Satan in him. We can see that he has become what I often think about as the unman. The unman, one of the most terrifying things to think about. A mockery of what it is to be human. A stark contrast with God's intended purpose for man. He's now as a beast. And looking at this picture of this demon-possessed man in Mark, know this, that such a picture would Satan love to turn all living humans into. This would be his purpose for our lives, if he could have it his way. This is the goal and working of all sin, of all unregenerate affections and of Satan, to get a man to live as a beast in the tombs. The unmeaning of language, the unfeeling of affection, the undoing of work, the very numbing over of the burden of existence that is unsaved suffering. 
All that is human is set at variance with itself in a case like this. The very definition and meaning of what it means to be human is now confused, contorted, warped, destroyed. The kingdom of Satan had truly claimed this individual as its own. And just as an individual can be brought to such a place, so too can a society. And this we are seemingly suffering to watch in our day. All that is evil is being called good, and all that is good is being called evil. We see it every day. It's been progressing more and more and more. Meaning and value is being sapped from all human language. Every day there's new speak coming out. Words are given new definitions. A society left in such a state, when the church is removed, the preaching of the gospel is removed, will soon become nothing more than a landscape of tombs and caves, mere haunts for the tortured inhabitants to roar and shriek in, a place for the undead to sit around and lacerate themselves in order to feel something once again. And that's basically what we're seeing in our culture now. But as Jesus, with a mere word, calmed the storm, this dangerous, deadly, powerful storm with a word, so too did he liberate this poor, tortured individual from a legion of demonic spirits. He regenerated his heart. He healed his senses. He gave him back his dignity and indeed his humanity. Such is the power of Christ over satanic armies and even more so over the rebellious heart of sinners. Let us notice three aspects of the case of the Gadarene demoniac. Number one, we'll look at demonic activity. Demonic activity. Number two, Christ's power to deliver. Christ's power to deliver. Number three, some various responses that we see in the passage towards what Christ does. So first, demonic activity. Secondly, Christ's power to deliver. And third, the responses. First, let's look at some of the demonic activity we see here. There is something we should remember when it comes to discussing the work of demons and Satan. The Bible gives us very little information as to the exact nature, the exact doings and workings of these wicked beings. It simply tells us that Satan and his demons are active, they are real, they are among us, that we must fight against them, and that they have no power to do anything except that which God permits and allows. Thus, we have seen much harm come from too much vain speculation in regard to the nature and working of demons. Too much vain speculation. You can go into a Christian bookstore. I used to work at a Christian bookstore. They're pretty much gone nowadays, but I used to work at a Christian bookstore, and in there, there was an entire section on angels, and in that section, they'd usually have the stuff about demons as well, and there was encyclopedias on different kinds of demons, their names, uh, different kinds of prayers you could pray to get rid of certain kinds of demons, A lot of it was borrowed from Roman Catholicism, but very strange. So a lot of vain speculation has gone on in regards to demons and Satan and demonic activity. However, even though the Bible says very little and we shouldn't speculate too much, we can say that there are two dangers to be avoided by biblical Christians in our approach to the demonic. Too little emphasis on one side is something we need to avoid. Too little emphasis. And then too much emphasis. Too little emphasis and too much emphasis. Both we must seek to avoid. Christ is the center of our faith as Christians. 
Christ is the center. Not angels, not demons, not ourselves, not other people, not the church. He is to be the focus. And anything that gets the focus of our life and our duties and our beliefs and our eyes and our heart off of Christ and onto anything else is something we need to labor to avoid. Under this heading of demonic activity, let us also say that we should not deny it nor underestimate it. We need to make sure that we do not do those two things. We cannot deny or underestimate the work of demons and Satan. We understand very little about demonic possession, especially demonic possession. But we cannot deny it because it is scriptural. The Old Testament says very little about demonic possession. And in the New Testament, it is to be found primarily in the ministry of Jesus. That's primarily where you will see demonic possession. Some would say the Old Testament says nothing. I think there's a couple cases that could be argued about uh, seeing demonic possession in the Old Testament. But either way, the Old and the New Testament say relatively little about specifically demonic possession. We see it mostly in the ministry of Jesus Christ. And this time period seems to be when the greatest occurrence of demonic possessions happened. It's when it was at its height. Today, with the rise of empiricism and enlightenment rationalism, the supernatural in general, whether it's demons, angels, God, is altogether denied or viewed only with skepticism. That's something to keep in mind as modern people. That our context tells us there is no such thing as supernatural. Everything is natural. And in the 1800s, when this was really getting to be prominent, and most biblical scholars, most pastors, most theologians were anti-supernaturalists, There's been tons of attempts from then forward to still hold to the text and yet explain away the supernatural in it. To explain away the miracle that is in our passage by natural means. But such an approach only shows itself to be foolish and to wrest the natural meaning of language and words from their place entirely. There is no natural explanation for what we see in our passage. None. The New Testament is clear that as Christians, we have to deal with the forces of Satan on a daily basis. Paul tells us in Ephesians 6.11 to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. If he did not exist, Paul would not tell us to do that. James tells us to resist the devil. Peter tells us to be sober and be vigilant against the devil and his workings in our life. In our daily warfare and daily lives as Christians, we, quote, wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness and high places. Ephesians 6.12. So these are real things we have to deal with. We see that we must not deny the reality of our spiritual foe. His influence upon our mind His influence upon our affections and our actions is real and must be guarded against. It must. It must be fought. Our Lord Jesus even teaches us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. All forms of evil. Satan, flesh, sin, the world. Although a Christian cannot be possessed, there's a lot of weird teaching about that as well, that you can be possessed as a Christian. He can be, and often is, oppressed and influenced by demonic forces. And that was uncomfortable because there's not a lot to go on on how to deal with that or what it looks like as Christians, but it's true. 
We see it in Scripture and in our own lives. We have an innumerable host of demonic spirits. Innumerable. Ruled by their infernal leader, Satan, up against us. That's just the reality. As one commentator said, quote, If our eyes were suddenly opened to see the spiritual realm, we should likely find demonic spirits all around us, at the foot of our bed, along our paths, observing us, plotting against us, and seeking to destroy us, and yet we are completely unaware of it. It is our folly if we choose to disbelieve in or underestimate our foe, end quote. There is much, very much, that we do not understand about this subject of demons, working of Satan, demonic possession, and our Lord has seen fit to disclose very little on this subject to us. We must trust and have faith in that. Other than we should be vigilant against Satan, we are warring against Satan, we must be ready to stand fast against him, standing on the scripture and what the scriptures teach, in faith and with prayer, to wield our spiritual weaponry against him and to pray against him. That's what we can be sure about. This alone shows us how foolish it would be to disbelieve in Satan and his agents. Our Lord has commanded and equipped us to resist Satan by his own strength, not our own. Be strong in the Lord, Paul says, and in the power of his might, resist the devil and he will flee from you, Peter says. J.C. Ryle put it this way, quote, No doubt there is much in the subject of satanic possession which we do not understand and cannot explain. But let us not therefore refuse to believe it. The eastern king would not believe in the possibility of ice because he lived in a hot country and had never seen it. Was not more foolish than the man who refuses to believe in satanic possession because he never saw a case himself and cannot understand it. We may be sure that upon the subject, subject of the devil and his power, we are far more likely to believe too little than too much. Unbelief about the existence and personality of Satan has often proved the first step to unbelief about God. End quote. I think that's especially true in our day amongst uh, fellow Reformed believers. I think it's a theme I see often that we emphasize Satan, demons, too little. That's where we fall on. Because we want to be scriptural, we want to make sure that we stand in the Bible, but in doing that, we forget that there's a spiritual realm around us. There's a spiritual warfare that we're engaged in. And in doing that, we depart from our Puritan, Baptist, Reformed forefathers who wrote entire tomes on the topic of spiritual warfare, on Satan, on demons. So to doubt or underestimate Satan is to play the part of an unbeliever. That's why we must avoid it. However, we have to hold this in contrast, right? This does not mean that we should then go looking for Satan, signs of the demonic, under every rock and behind every occurrence that takes place in life. No matter what happens, oh, it's Satan. It's a demon. Look over there, it's a demon. No. The operations of Satan do not nullify in the least the responsibility of human evil. Many of you may remember this. I think it's still going on. There were some groups down at ASU and some other churches that were involved in a big thing a few years ago of Christian groups in Arizona that spent much time, hours upon hours, months, laboring to map out the demonic territories of the valley, the, the demonic hotspots within our city, pretending to discern the name of the archdemon that was over each locality 
of our city. They would figure out who, which demon it was and his name. Because if you had his name, you had his authority over him. You figure out his name. And then they would go to that sector that he owned in, in Phoenix. And they would march up and down that area. And they would pray against Satan. Praying in tongues and commanding him out. The name of that demon. <clears throat> Commendable as their efforts to unseat Satan may be, they would have done far better by preaching the gospel to the sinful inhabitants of Phoenix than by rebuking her specters and the phantoms of their own making. Most earthly evils can be traced back to human wickedness. Human wickedness, including the fall. Eve and Adam tried to play the blame game then, too. Eve said, Satan made me do it. But reality is, Adam is to blame. It fell upon him. He chose to sin. Satan did not make him. So to the majority, the vast majority, I think, of earthly evils can be traced back to human wickedness, not to the working of Satan. Thus, the only way these evils that we see in the world of sin and faithlessness and wickedness can be done away with in our world is by the power of Christ himself. We see that in our passage. Now, how does this happen? Well, this power of Christ goes out to conquer the world through the faithful proclamation of the gospel, through societies of biblical, faithful Christian workers, not societies of fanciful demon hunters. Let's also note, note this, the nature of demonic activity. The nature. Our Lord Jesus said that Satan, whom he labels the thief in John 10.10, 10, cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. The demon-possessed man in our passage is a picture of what Satan wishes to make every living being into. The evil powers of darkness are never to be trusted. They're only here to kill, to steal, to lie, to lead astray, and to destroy. This man had his dwelling amongst the tombs. He was in a graveyard. As to human nature and usefulness, he was dead, as good as dead. We read that no man could bind him. No, not with chains. The demons had given him such strength that he could not even be restrained and brought back into the control of human society. That's why they were trying to bind the man, to bring him back into the society. To fix him, see what's wrong with him. They couldn't even bring him back into human society. He plucked asunder and broke in pieces the chains and the fetters which his fellow men had placed upon him. Now, the only home for him was in the tombs. The blessing of human interaction had been stolen from him. All he could do now is sleeplessly dwell in these cursed places, wailing, writhing, cutting himself. In reality, this man was dead. Actually, he was worse than dead. Worse than dead. Again, such would Satan like to make us all into. The desire of Satan is to destroy that which God has made, that which God loves. Notice that when these demons were driven from the man, they plead to go into the swine. From this we learn that the demons, Satan, if he can no longer destroy the man, chooses to destroy a lesser creation. To kill, to steal, and to destroy. 
If I can't have the man, the crown creation of God, then I'll destroy this other little stuff. Insatiable lust for destruction and death. Lastly, before we move to the next point, let us consider that we were all once in that position, or a like position. Though we may may not have been possessed as this man was possessed, torn from society, dwelling amongst the graveyards with madness, yet we all, at one time, in our unregeneracy, were homes for demons. We were sons of disobedience, the Bible says, and had Satan as our father. We were dead in trespasses and sins in which we once walked. We were entombed in our fallen nature. We may pity this demon-possessed man, but we were all once no better than he, though not in so outwardly terrible a state, perhaps. It is true that fallen nature makes a sweet home for Satan. Fallen nature makes a sweet home for Satan. No matter how outwardly civil and respectable a sinner's nature appears to be, he has nothing more than a home for demons. As in the parable of Jesus, an unclean spirit leaves a man looking for rest, and when it returns, it finds the house empty, swept, and garnished, and then he goes and taketh with himself seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter in and dwell there. And the last day of the man is worse than the first. Thus, if a man is not born again, if a person is not born again, regenerate and salvation, not made a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit, then no matter how swept clean, how garnished and respectable he may appear, he remains a comfortable dwelling for wicked spirits. Let us therefore judge as God judges, not as man judges. All that matters is one's standing and union to Christ. That's it. Not their outward neatness. Second point, Christ's power to deliver. Christ's power to deliver. The next thing we shall take note of in this passage is Christ's power in delivering the man. None could tame, none could bind this man. He was fully surrendered over to his own sin and his own demise at the demon's hands. Yet, Christ always does what no man can do. We notice this, the following. There was demonic submission to Christ. Demonic submission. Satan and his demons are but creatures. Let us remember that. Though powerful, their power is limited or restrained. They do nothing of their own accord. Luther often said that it comforted him to think about the fact that Satan was God's Satan. Satan was God's Satan. He kept him on a leash. We also see that the demons worshipped Jesus. What does it mean? When Jesus and his disciples got out of the boat onto the land, the demoniac saw Jesus afar off. He ran and he worshipped him. Now this just means to go down before. To bow down before. But it's the same word that is also used for offering religious worship. Not that they offered true worship out of love, but they recognized their rightful ruler when he appeared. They recognized their rightful ruler, the God who had created them, against whom they were in current rebellion. And they came and they knelt before him. The man, an unsaved Gentile, at the instigation of these demons who possessed him, came and knelt before Jesus. Came and knelt before Jesus. The demon then spoke, said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou son of the most high God? I adjure thee by God, 
that thou torment me not. So just as the turbulent sea in the passage before recognized the voice of its creator when Jesus spoke and obeyed, so too did the demons recognize Jesus as their God, their creator. They acknowledge Jesus' power over them, knowing that he is their rightful judge, he is their rightful ruler, and they implored him, therefore, not to destroy him. This is a far different picture than we see painted by many evangelicals and, and, and Pentecostals in our day, where Satan runs amok. He's neck and neck with Jesus. They're at a tie. Who knows who will win? This is a far different picture the Bible paints, isn't it? That the demons come before him and implore him. They have to ask before they make a single move. They knew that their fate was in his hands and that one day they would be judged by him. We see that in other places in Mark and the other Gospels. Hast thou come to destroy us before the time? They know that their time is coming. The demons feared Christ and rightfully so. They knew that they were at his complete disposal. The same God who had permitted their entrance into this man could give them permission to exist a little longer in their wickedness if he was so willing. They knew that they were in the presence of the Son of the Most High God. Then Jesus asks, What is thy name? Now, for years when I've read this, I've always thought it was kind of strange. Why does he ask his name? And we know that many people have taken this and run with it, that if you have to get the name of the demon or the name of the evil spirit in your TV or whatever to get its name, then you have authority over it, then you can cast it out, then you'll have blessing, then you'll have health in your life. You have to bind that demon by its name. Well, there's much speculation, therefore, on why Jesus asks its name, but with many of the commentators that will stand, like Henry and Gill and others, that it's likely... He does this likely so that the bystanders would be affected by seeing the great number of demons. Seeing just what is occurring in front of them, they'd be affected by it and realize what a great and glorious miracle this was. Which is intimated by the answer the demon or demons give. My name is Legion, for we are many. A Roman legion, if you are unaware, contains anywhere from six to 12,000 soldiers. Six to 12,000 soldiers. The man had become not only a dwelling place for one demon, that's bad enough. But he was a refuge for an entire army of wicked spirits. This is what was dwelt, this is what dwelt in the man, and this is what Jesus is up against. I think this is why Jesus asks the name. So the people know really what is taking place, what kind of miracle. 12,000, 6,000 demons It's bad news. Notice what the demons then do. They besought him. They knew that they couldn't stand no chance in combat. They besought him much, that he would not send them away out of the country, and they knew that there's a herd of swine feeding near there. They then implored Jesus, saying, Send us into the swine, that we may enter into them. If they could no longer do evil to the man... They still wished to fulfill their desire to do torment, even if it was simply to enact cruel torment on the dumb beasts. Jesus gave them leave, meaning he gave them permission. He allowed that. He permitted them to go into the swine if they left off tormenting the man. So at Christ's order, the legion of demons are expelled from the man and go into the beasts. 
And then we read, And the herd ran violently down a steep place into the sea, there were about 2,000, and were choked in the sea. These demons, having been sent now into the swine, expend the full vent of their wrath upon these dumb animals after being prohibited to dwell any longer in the man. Their fury is unleashed on the animals. Such is the violence, such is the unthinking, meaningless violence and destruction of demons. Jesus had cast them out. In the Gospel of Mark especially, we see the casting out of demons as a miraculous evidence. We see it time and time again at pretty much every one of the key points in the Gospel of Mark. Demons are cast out to show the kingdom of God going forward. As the kingdom of God advances in Jesus' ministry, demons are cast out. It shows his absolute power and authority over Satan and the works of Satan. The driving out of satanic control and the establishment of his own power is demonstrated in his casting out of demons. And casting out the demons from the man, Christ did what no man could do. Others had tried to bind him, bring him in, help him, to no avail. No man could bind or restrain the wrath of the demons. Nor could any man tame the nature of the man and bring him back to his senses. They tried. Yet, in an instant, the man who had so long suffered the torment of the demons is delivered. What no man could do, Christ did. Binding the demon and taming the man. And we know that in salvation, our Lord Jesus Christ casts out the dead heart of stone within us. He gives us a heart of flesh. He tames our nature according to his precepts and his law, bound by love. Notice to where the demons went, into a herd of swine. Recall that swine were unclean to the Jews. They were unclean. And this Gentile town kept a herd of swine outside the town. So it's a visual example, a visual exclamation point on the uncleanness of the demons. They were sent into the swine from a man, much better dwelling place, to swine. So too, man's evil nature grows worse and worse, does it not? Grows worse and worse. Fallen man, given over, grows more and more evil, more and more wicked. From a fallen man, sinful man, to living almost like a beast, and some men even like devils. Paul reminds the Christian church in Ephesus in Ephesians 4, 17 through 19, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk, in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their hearts, who being past feeling have given themselves over unto, unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. With greediness. So, Paul's telling these Christians, you're not to behave as you once did when you were a Gentile. As the other Gentiles did, who knew not God, who didn't even have the law of God given. Now that you know the law of God, now that you know Christ, that you are His, your heart has been remade, you've been born again, your mind has been renewed, do not live like they do, because they just give themselves over continually more and more, becoming more and more darkened, more and more hardened, and actually wanting to do uncleanness with greediness. We all know some stubborn sinner in our life. 
who maybe started out just not really interested in hearing about the Jesus stuff, who maybe at this time has grown hard, calloused, hostile, and vile towards God. Human nature grows worse and worse in its unregenerate state. In looking at the power of Christ to deliver, we would do amiss to not notice the change that occurred within this man. His neighbors, who had grown fearful of even passing by that way, even taking that way home where this man dwelt, who had often tried in vain to capture and subdue him and give him help, now come and they find him with Jesus sitting and clothed and in his right mind, the text says. And they are afraid. Why are they afraid? Well, how had this occurred? We've tried everything for this guy. How was this man now as other men were? Previously, he was as a beast. He was wild and dangerous. Had the man been captured and institutionalized for a time? Had the man been subscribed a medication that's been really been working well? Had he been making great strides in his therapy sessions? No, none of these. None of this occurred. He had come to Jesus, and Jesus had cast the demons out from him. That's all. That's it. There is no natural explanation for what occurred. Even some trusted commentaries I looked at tried to add in some natural explanations as well. There is no natural explanation. The text says what the text says. To search for a natural explanation is to search in vain. The explanation as to what happened to the man is the explanation given by Scripture. Jesus had cast the demons, the legion, from the man. Let us labor as Christians to live in such a way for Christ, to dwell so closely, so richly with him, to walk so circumspectly according to his law, to bring with such love to him and have such gratitude to him and have such love for one another that people will see us and they'll know that there has been a real, substantial change within us, especially those who knew us prior, that they will be afraid when they see it. Afraid of the fear of God. Let us aim to live so that people will see it as a true statement when we say with Paul, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. If we dwell richly in Christ, closely with Christ, in love and gratitude and faithfulness and hope, people will see that that is true. It will be evident. And all this, let us also remember that Satan is not to be blamed for our deeds, for our life. He's not a good excuse for anyone, especially Christians. We must not search for excuses. We alone are to blame for our actions. Even if Satan is the one that gave breadcrumbs and whispered in our ear that it was a good idea, we did it. We did it. The excuse, Satan made me do it, has never been a valid excuse from the first time it was tried when the first humans did the first sin. It's especially not valid for us as believers. That which a person chooses to do, they chose to do of their own volition entirely, period. Their free will chose to do it. When we sin, we choose of our own volition to sin. When any man sins, they choose of their own volition to sin. God cannot be blamed. Satan cannot be blamed. Other people cannot be blamed. 
Only the sinner can be blamed. Third point, lastly, some of the responses to this miracle that Christ does. The responses. It's interesting to look at these responses. These various responses to Christ shown in the passage. That of the demon-possessed man himself. That of the demons. That of the townspeople. They all teach us something about Christ and about ourselves. First, let's look at the demoniac. When he was demon-possessed, he comes to Christ. He came to Christ. One commentator was talking about how probably the reason people were afraid when they passed by was because this man would come running out of the tombs nude, cut up, and try to attack you and kill you. Well, it appears he does the same here, running to Jesus. But then something happens. He doesn't attack him and kill him. No, he bows before him. So although he was possessed with a legion of demons and out of his mind, something moved the man to come to Christ and to fall down at his feet. And this is a whole other discussion that we don't have any time for, really. But a possessed man in the scriptures is still a man. He's not a demon. He had a legion of demons, but he was still responsible for what he was doing. He was still in control of what he was doing to a degree. Again, scripture doesn't give too much light on this. But this man comes running to Jesus and falls down before him at his feet, at his mercy. From this we can learn that those who know their great need of Christ will receive great aid of Christ. Those who know their great need of Christ will receive great aid of Christ. He is willing to aid humble sinners. There is no case too hard for our Savior. Even the man who was a dwelling place for 12,000-ish demons. The only thing that keeps needy sinners from his help is their own sinful pride. Let us look to see, dear congregation, that in all of our needs... We're not trying to use the arm of the flesh, but we are coming humbly to Christ, presenting our cases, our needs, our anxieties, our fears before him, for he cares for us, the Bible says. He is our father. The flesh is weak and it profits nothing. The spirit is able and willing, and Jesus is the great physician. Let's also look at how the demons submitted to Christ, how they responded. They submitted to him. James tells us the devils also believe and tremble. The devils also believe and tremble. This is seen in our passage very clearly. It's a great demonstration of that passage in James. They came to Christ. They submitted to his will. They asked his permission, knowing that they were subject to him. They believed that there was one God. They knew who that one God was, and they submitted to him. That's how they responded. They submitted, but not out of love. No, not out of love. Not even out of duty, but out of necessity. And we know also when we read in Philippians that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. For the unbeliever, as well as for the demon, this is a submission of necessity, not of duty, not of gratitude or of love. They submit because they must. The demons submitted here because they had to. Not because they should, nor because they wished to. So let us not forget that there is a submission which is no submission at all. When we submit to God grumbling, complaining, angry at him, bitter, doubting, you did did the thing, you submitted, 
That's not real submission. It's no submission at all. Do not submit as demons submit, dear Christian. That's what we have to remember. We have to submit as children to our Father who loves us. There must be a joyful and resigning thy will be done when we submit for true obedience and true submission to exist. We have to submit to God in all of our circumstances as unto our heavenly Father who worketh all things for our good. Do do not submit with a heart that says, He is God. I am a worm. If I do not submit, He's going to destroy me. So I guess I'll submit. Well, that's how the unbelievers will submit at the Day of Judgment. That's how the demons submit. Rather, let us in our submission to God and the trials, the circumstances, the providences, the crosses that come into our lives, say, My God is my Father, and He orchestrates all matters of my life out of love to me for my good. I have trusted him with my soul. I now entrust to him my all. Notice also how the shepherds and the townspeople responded to what Jesus did. They drove him from their coasts. Get out of here. That's verse 17. When the men of that country were told by the keepers of the pigs what had happened, they came to see what had occurred. Naturally. They saw their restored neighbor sitting with Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. He had a a legion of demons in him. Let's just keep that in mind. A legion. Now he's in his right mind, clothed and sitting with Jesus. That's why they were afraid. One of the reasons. Then they look over and they see 2,000 dead pigs floating in the Sea of Galilee. They're 2,000 dead pigs. After weighing the matter, essentially, they concluded that the collateral evil which followed the good which Jesus did for their friend outweighed the miracle itself. Outweighed the miracle itself. For them, it was better to ensure that they would not lose any more livestock than to have Jesus among them. And they began to pray him to depart out of their coasts. Oh, dear congregation, let us not, let us ensure that we Do not respond to Jesus like this. Not like this. Let us ensure that we do not consider the temporary ease and niceties of life to be of too great a value to be disrupted for the sake of having Christ. To be of too too great a value to be disrupted for the sake of having Christ. Better to be without land and livelihood than to be without the blessed communion of Christ Jesus our Lord is what we should think of as Christians. The same heart that implores Jesus to depart from them to secure worldly ease is the same heart that will one day implore the mountains and the rocks, saying, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb in Revelation 6, 16. Those are one and the same heart. Lastly, let's see how the man, the demoniac, after he is delivered, responded. Well, he responded to Christ by desiring to be with him and to accomplish his will. The man, after the demons were cast out from him, then prayed to Jesus that he might be with him, begged him, asked him, implored him. The man desired to remain with his deliverer. So too does every saved soul. Sometimes that reality might be more palpable at one time than another. Sometimes we feel very distant from God and have so engrossed ourselves by our own poor choices with worldly things that we 
desire very little of God. But our soul still does desire God, to be with God, to be with our deliverer. And we have to turn back again to God. To think about the things of heaven. To put our affections in the proper place. No greater desire has the Christian than to be with Christ. We long to be in his presence. And in this life also, we seek his presence in sweet communion and prayer and the reading of scripture and the accomplishing of his will for our lives. But notice that Jesus suffered him not. He didn't allow him. Jesus didn't permit the man to stay with him in the boat. Rather than indulging the man, he turned him away. Jesus and his disciples would continue to the Jews. They would continue to go on to the Jews and preach the gospel. This man would be sent back to his friends at home to tell them how great things the Lord hath done. So this man was used of God. Look, it seems like he got a short end of the stick. He didn't get to be with Jesus. But no, he was sent by Jesus to go to the Gentiles, his Gentile home, his Gentile neighbors, his Gentile friends. And these friends had so long watched him suffer under the torture of demonic possession, it would surely affect them to see that he really was in his right state of mind, that he was delivered, he was anew. They didn't want Jesus with, with them. They wouldn't receive Jesus at all. So he sent the man who was delivered to them, to be with them. The man then went and began to publish how great things Jesus had done for him. And all men did marvel. They knew the man's previous case. And now they see his latter case, that he's delivered, that he's in his right mind, that he's no longer naked in the graveyard, cutting himself and shrieking into the night, all night, every night, and all day, every day. No longer trying to kill people as they walk by, but is clothed in his right mind and now crazy for Jesus. He's a fool for Christ now. They knew what had happened, but now they need to know who had done it for him. Let us too, dear congregation, have a great earnestness to tell others what great things God has done for us. And how he has had compassion on us. We have much to say. Every breath that we take, even in this place now, is another thing to tell the world about. The great compassion that Jesus has had upon us. We have much to say and many to tell it to. This great one, who can calm storms, as we saw last week, who can expel demon armies, is also the one who can save souls. All three of those things are impossible with man. And yet Jesus does it. From this passage, we can boldly say that Satan is vanquished on the cross. Sin is atoned for. The flesh is crucified. The old man is dead. And only a victorious new life in Christ remains for us who believe, dear Christian. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank Thee once again for Thy love towards us, Thy great work upon us, Thy compassion toward us, O Lord. Lord, give us greater meditation on the fact that Thou dost love us, Thy love for us. Thou hast vanquished all of our foes 
No foe stands in our way. We are more than victors in thee. Give us more of this blessed assurance of knowing that we are thy children and thou art our God. In Jesus' name, amen.